Well, one thing that regularly happens during an election year, especially uh, the presidential one when we are looking at the, the country and we're counting electoral votes, is you see a lot of this dichotomy between the city and the country. Uh, and this is, by the way, not new at all. Uh, when I was getting my uh, degree in English, one of the most common themes throughout all of human literature has been the theme of the city versus the country. And what we find, the reason this becomes a theme is because cities and countries tend to have, and I mean country in terms of just land, counties, not, not a huge country, but the city versus the land, if you will, tend to have very different cultures, very different beliefs and thoughts and ways of life. And so there really truly is a dichotomy between the way of life in the city and the way of life out in the country. And when we in America, when we talk about the country, uh, oftentimes it's spoken of in very negative terms, right? We talk about the, the Midwest is, what do we call it? We call it flyover states, States that, you know, when you fly over and you see all the land and all the crops and all the agriculture. Because we think of these, these are the boring places to live, right? You want to live in the city and you have to drive through Nebraska. There's nothing there. You have to drive through. It's flat. It's boring, right? We, we tend to sort of associate a lot of times negative um, animosity and emotions for the country, the people who live there, though, tend to really enjoy it. They like the, the culture and the belief system and the slow way of life. They're not impressed by flash. They tend to live below their means. And so there is this interesting, in all of civilization, we've always had this interesting dichotomy, this fight between the city and the country. Well, so far, as we've been working through Revelation chapter 2, I know we uh, took a, a couple weeks off for some thematic stuff, but so far, all of the letters that the Lord Jesus has addressed through John, through the Holy Spirit, have been to big cities. The first one we looked at was Ephesus, and the city of Ephesus is still today considered one of the greatest cities in all of Roman history. Ephesus has tons of history. It was incredibly influential and powerful and important. And even to this day, Ephesus is considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. If you wanted to study the ancient world, the first century world today, you would be encouraged to go visit modern day Ephesus. Ephesus was hugely important and large. We looked at Pergamum, or as it's often pronounced, Pergamos. And one scholar described Pergamum or Pergamos as this. Pergamum was a rich and powerful ancient Greek city. This was a rich, powerful, influential city. Uh, another scholar also looked at our Smyrna, who we looked at last time, and he said this about it. Due to its advantageous port conditions and its ease of defense, and its good inland connections, Smyrna rose to prominence in the ancient world. This was a city of great prominence. So everything we've looked at so far has been, according to Asia Minor, the big cities. It would be like a modern day equivalent would be like if we looked at the church in Los Angeles, the church in New York City, and the church in Chicago. But today we move to little, little old Theatira. If you would open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Today we are going to look at the church in Theatira. And Theatira is not like Ephesus or Pergamum 
or Smyrna, and that Theatira is what we would maybe modern day called flyover land. This was country living. This was small town, irrelevant Theatira. No power, no wealth, famous people didn't live there. In other words, I think of Theatira, I like to use the term, this is a blue collar town. Theatira was the blue collar town. We, by the way, we actually know this from archaeology pretty, uh, pretty well. We, we have found, our archaeologists have found that Theatira was known for its blue-collar people who worked with their hands. It was a, a town of, of, of hand workers. We know that it was filled with wool workers, linen workers, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, and bronze smiths. This was blue-collar living. Well, we also know that it, the most uh, important trade, the most important business of Theatira was their ability to produce and dye purple garments. Purple garments and purple, these, these purple fabrics were very important in Rome, and so they, they produced all of that. And what's interesting is this might sound familiar because in the book of Acts, one of the most well-known women in the book of Acts is a woman named Lydia who believes Paul's message and comes to be saved. Her, the Lord opens her heart to these things. But what we know about Lydia is she was a, a purple seller. She sold purple fabrics. She made purple fabrics and Theatira. So Lydia is from this city. It is a blue collar, work with your hands, sun up to sundown, not famous, not flashy, not popular, small little town. And I think what we're going to find today is that the church in Theatira, the culture of the church, was very similar to the culture of small town living. Theatira was a blue collar church, and I'm going to argue that the Theatirans are addressed for their blue collar Christianity. So I've titled this sermon, Blue Collar Christianity. If you would read with me, it's one of the longer addresses to a church that we have, but we are going to read all the way through from 18 to 29. If you would follow along, for these are the very words of God. And to the angel of the church in Theatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Theotira, who do not hold to this teaching who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay hold on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, as Jesus tends to do through John and through the Spirit, he structures these letters in a very helpful, obvious outline. 
The structure is very noticeable. We have an introduction. We have a commendation. He commends them for something. We have a condemnation. He condemns them for something. And then he gives them a warning, an exhortation, and and a conclusion. Right? Introduction. Here's what you do well. Here's what you're not doing well. Here's a warning. Keep doing this. Goodbye. Right? So let's go through this and and tie it into this blue-collar Christianity that I'm seeing, and then we'll see uh, how this applies to us today in important and helpful ways. So the introduction, verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Theatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Jesus, the Son of God, describes himself first as having fire eyes. Eyes of fire. And fire in, in the Bible is very often used as a metaphor for purging, for cleansing, for discipline and judgment. Right? First Corinthians talks about how all of our works will be judged. He says that your works will go through a fire. And that which is built up of wood, hay, and straw will be burned. That which is gold and silver will remain. Fire is cleansing purification and judgment. So Jesus has eyes of fire and what that's telling us is that he sees and knows all. Again, we can hide our works from the world. We can disguise ourselves from the world. But Jesus has fire eyes. He sees our works and he knows what they're worth. But he also has feet of bronze. This is to remind us that his judgments are severe and unchanging. Someone who has bronze feet is immovable. You can't move them. You can't budge them. And when they go and they tread the wine press, they stomp hard with their bronze feet. Jesus begins by telling them, I see evil, I know evil, and I will rightfully judge evil. And this is an important introduction because what did we just read? A vast majority of this is Jesus promising judgment upon a false teacher and her followers. Jesus saying, I know her, I know her followers, I know what they do, I know what they believe, and I will stomp them. So he begins appropriately. He moves on to his commendation. And this is where I think think we see the blue-collar lifestyle come out. Right? What is this church doing well? What does Jesus commend them for? They're just faithfully plugging away. This is a church, they're just working hard. Right? Verse 19, I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance. They're just being holy. They're just loving God, and they're pursuing God. They're pursuing righteousness, pursuing love. They're doing what they're supposed to do, and they're unceasing in it. This is sun up to sun down hard work, never-ending hard work. This is a spiritual work ethic. They're doing what they're supposed to do, and they keep doing it. But notice, he doesn't just say that. He tells them something very important. He doesn't just see their works, but that your latter works exceed the first. That means this church has been progressively growing more and more holy. They're like true cowboys and ranchers. They don't get lazy. They don't slack off. They don't quit when the going gets tough. They have not only continued their work, but they've grown in their work. They've become more produceful. This is what we want of the Lord Jesus to say not only about our church, but of all of us as individuals, that we ended way better than where we started. When I was in high school playing football, I had a strength coach who had a little motto. He would say it every single day we walked in the weight room. It's not where you start, 
it's where you finish. It's not where you start, it's where you finish. We, everyone comes to Christ sinful, miserable, and broken. That's how we're born. That's not the issue. The issue is not how bad are you when you come to Christ. The issue is come to Christ and then be forever progressively changed. We're not interested in where we start. We're interested in where we finish. And this is a church, they started well and they've only gotten better. Their latter works exceed the first. This is blue-collar Christianity. Work hard, continue to work hard. As a matter of fact, work even harder. Every single day you work harder than the last. Every single day you get better. This is a church with a true spiritual work ethic. This is blue-collar folks here. So Jesus commends them for their hard work, for their faithfulness, and for their progress. But he does have to condemn them of something. And that is this. You see, the blue-collar country life can almost be too nice. You know, you go out to... to, to it's, it's not like the city where everyone is, you know, sick of each other and they don't like each other and they don't want to be around crowds. You go out to the Midwest, people love their neighbors. They love chatting. They love talking. Life is slower there. Hospitable. Everybody knows everybody. It's great. But sometimes that can be a fault. You see, when it comes to our spiritual life, it's actually possible to be too hospitable. When it comes to our spiritual life, it's possible to be too nice. So in the same way, if someone were to come into your house and disrespect you, it's possible that they might overstay their welcome. And it's time to kick them out. But you see, this church was too blue-collar for that. They were too country for that. They were too nice. Someone came into their church and overstayed their welcome. And they tolerated it. Look at what Jesus says. How does Jesus condemn them in verse 20? But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So there's a woman who claims to be a prophetess, which is, by the way, is not that unheard of. The Jews had female prophets. Miriam was a female prophet, for example. In the New Testament, we had a form of female prophets in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, women who prophesied with their heads covered. So that was not altogether that bizarre. But we have this woman who has come in and she's claiming to be a prophet. She's claiming to speak on behalf of God. And she has garnered some kind of a following. People are trusting her and believing her, but she's not actually leading them into the things of God. She's leading them into pagan worship and sexual immorality, which, by the way, in their day and age, sexual immorality was part of the pagan worship. As a matter of fact, uh, speaking of the historical context, it was very difficult to be a Christian in Theatira because all of the work was this kind of manual labor skill jobs, and they broke these things up into guilds what they called guilds. You'd have your bronze working guilds and your leather working guilds and you had to join these guilds in order to really work the job at all. It was uh, very, very difficult because these guilds were very religious. They obeyed the Roman religion and you had to be religious to really be a part of these guilds. And part of Roman religion was Rome had a very sexualized religion. We love to talk about how America is over-sexualized. That is absolutely true. It's wicked, vile, and disgusting how sexualized our culture is. But do not think for a minute that we're like unique. We still don't hold a candle to the vast majority of first century cultures when it comes to an overly sexualized culture. Sexual immorality was part of the worship. You'd go to church to commit adultery. That's what you did in Roman worship. 
And so whether she was bringing them into this kind of worship, we don't know, but we know that there was a woman who was taking God's people, convincing them she's a prophet, hearing from God, and leading them into false worship. And so let me just remind you, by the way, living 2,000 years after the closing of the canon, if someone claims to hear the word of God in their head, that doesn't matter to you. You've got the scriptures. Don't, it, it should never, ever matter to you if someone claims to hear from God. Jezebel heard from God, apparently. But, by the way, it's very unlikely that this woman was actually named Jezebel. Because what we've seen already as Jesus is addressing these churches is Jesus loves to bring Old Testament circumstances and sort of paint the picture with those Old Testament stories. And, and he's reminding them, you guys know these stories. You know how your forefathers and how your family descendants fell and sinned. And I want you to see that you're doing the exact same thing. You think you're above them, right? It's so easy to look back at history and stick our noses up at all those unenlightened morons who don't know as much as we do and who practice. And Jesus says, no, 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 you're not any better. He did that with Balaam, right? We saw the last time we looked at this, he said what Balaam did to Israel, that's what's happening to you guys. And Jesus says the same thing because who was Jezebel? Jezebel was a Greek uh, queen, a pagan queen who got married to one of Israel's most wicked rulers. Ahab became the king of Israel and Ahab broke the law and married a Gentile woman, a pagan Gentile woman. And so now we had a pagan Gentile woman who had a very real authority over the people of Israel now and she brought her paganism with her and it infiltrated Israel's ranks. She brought in the worship of what we call the Ashtoreth which was this pagan queen goddess of heaven. And now Israel, through Jezebel and through Ahab, now Israel is regularly engaged in worshiping the queen of heaven. Because a beautiful, powerful woman got power over God's people and brought them into paganism. And God says, this prophetess in your church, she's a new Jezebel. She's Jezebel 2.0. She's doing exactly to my people what the first Jezebel did to my people. She has gained power and influence among you and she has convinced you and brought you into sexual immorality and, and eating food sacrificed to idols. She's brought you into pagan worship. And so you see this blue collar church was too welcoming. She overstayed her welcome but they continued to tolerate her. And so Jesus says, I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. She is a false prophet teaching and seducing God's people into practice idolatry, just like the first Jezebel did. And so Jesus then breaks off into this warning. What's going to happen to Jezebel and to her followers and therefore happen to you if you follow her? He breaks off into this warning. He says this in verse 21, I gave her time to repent but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. I don't know what this looked like in real life. Uh, did, was there circumstances happening in her life where multiple people were calling her to repentance and she refused? I, I don't know what this looked like. But from Jesus' perspective, which is the true perspective, she has had ample time and ample opportunity to turn around. And that's why, by the way, that's why they are being rebuked for tolerating her. Jesus' point is this. The time for grace is over. The time for, for having an understanding, and it's over. She's had time. She refused to repent. So it's time to get rid of her. 
Stop tolerating that woman and purge her from your midst. She's had her opportunity and she squandered it. She has no desire to repent. And so, because she has not repented, he warns them in verse 22, I will throw her into a sickbed. Jesus is going to make this woman suffer. Sickness. And I want us to see the irony here. Right? Why does he describe it as a sickbed? There's this amazing irony here. What is Jezebel ultimately, what is she ultimately uh, uh, doing? She's defiling the marriage bed. The book of Hebrews tells us to keep the marriage bed pure. She is defiling the marriage bed and she's getting into a bed of lust with church members. And so Jesus says this bed of lust that she's jumping into, I'm going to turn that into her sick bed. That bed of lust is going to become her sick bed. And what does he say he's going to do? The children from this union, I'm going to kill them. He's turning her defiled marriage bed, her bed of lust, into her sick bed and into her descendant's deathbed. That, that phrase that I'm going to kill your children, it could possibly be spiritual. The Bible does talk about how uh, spiritual leaders are sort of seen as fathers, right? Paul tells Timothy that he's his spiritual father. Timothy, you are my child. So this could be perhaps uh, her followers are going to die. Or it could be whatever children she might be actually having from these sexual unions, God's going to kill those children. He did that to David. God's not afraid to do that. He did that to David. But whatever it is, God has promised she is going to get sick, her children are going to die, and who else is going to receive this judgment? Verse 22, those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. So all the people in the church engaging in this, this, this fornication with Jezebel, life's about to get real bad for them. And, and why does God want to do it this way? Verse 23, And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. That's the eyes of fire. He searches the mind and heart. He sees your works. And I will give to each according to your works. There's his bronze feet. Jesus says, I want to make it very clear to all the churches right now that I know what's going on and I am prepared to deal with it. Jesus, by the way, this is not uncharacteristic for God to pour out great judgment and wrath to make a point. This is one of the purposes of Egypt. You know, God didn't have to uh, be so harsh with Egypt. He could have just made them fall asleep. We see in the Old Testament, there's, there's a time where David, had, remember, the, the camp is sleeping and Saul's in the middle and David wants to go down and, and, and make sure that he was there but not kill Saul so Saul knows that he spared his life. And the text tells us that God put the camp into a deep sleep so that David could walk around and not have to worry about anyone waking up. God can put you to sleep. You realize he has the power to do that. Why didn't God just tell Moses, I'm just going to make them all fall asleep and then you guys have all the time in your work. Take your time, gather your things, you know, stop at 7-Eleven, get a big gulp. No, he wanted to make an example out of them. And it worked. Because what happened every time the people of Israel started going into a new territory? That's Yahweh, the God who crushed Egypt, were terrified. 
Jesus, this is like a mini exodus. I am going to make an example out of these sinners so that all of you will know that I am the judge, that I am a severe judge, and I am a righteous judge. I will give according to your works, and if your works are vile, it will be terrible. This is a threat. And God is not afraid to do that. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 11? Do not fear them who can destroy your body, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. There is a place, not just in unbelieving life, but even in Christian life, we need to be reminded that we tremble in the presence of a holy God. He needs a little more trembling out of these laid-back, blue-collar country folk. Life's a little too casual for them. They need a little bit more fear, a little bit more trembling. This is a holy God we're dealing with. So he introduces himself. He commends them for their hard work. He rebukes them for their toleration of Jezebel. He warns them of the judgment coming to Jezebel and her followers. But then he goes back and gets into a happier mood. Warning is over. And he goes back to giving them his exhortation. Verse 24. But to the rest of you in Theatira. So we know the whole church was not caught up with Jezebel. It was, it was a small portion, and Jesus is going to take care of them. But to the rest, who are guilty of tolerating this group too much, but they haven't gone with her, he says, to the rest, to, to all of you who are not caught up in that, who are going to be dealt with, to you, the faithful, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. Uh, we don't quite know exactly where that phrase comes from, but we have a good guess that I think is really strong. And here's where I think that comes from. Jezebel most likely was describing her prophecies, her ability. She likely described it as being able to know the deep things of God or the secret things of God. In other words, God had general revelation, or forgive me, he had special revelation given through the, the apostles, through the Old Testament scriptures, through the apostle scriptures. So we had this corporate body of revelation that Jude says is the once for all delivered faith to the saints. So God revealed the Christian faith through the prophets and the apostles. But Jezebel says, listen, I've got something different. I've got something, I'll admit, it's not in the Bible, it's not in Scripture, it's deeper than that. I can transcend into the secret things of God. God hasn't revealed this to his church corporately, but he's revealed it to me specifically. They're the secret things of God. And but the reason we think this, by the way, is because the first century was the seed, the kernel that was planted, that led to, in the second, third, and fourth century, one of the greatest heresies that has ever threatened the Christian faith, and it was a religion known as Gnosticism. Now, we do not have time to get into the details of Gnosticism because the Gnostics had a lot of crazy beliefs and there was a wide diversity to them, so I, we can't get into detail. But here's how we know that religion began, and it's where the name comes from. Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis because the Gnostics were claiming to have secret knowledge. We have a secret knowledge from God that all those Christians never were revealed through the prophets and the apostles. You see, these were people threatening the sufficiency of the apostles and prophets. Paul's not enough for you. Moses is not enough for you. You see, I've got the secret things of God, the things he has not revealed through Moses or Paul. And this led to a whole fake religion, those who had the secret knowledge, the Gnostics. 
And so what I think the group in, in Theatira did, really funny, Jezebel was claiming to know the secret things of God. But the church knew what these were actually, and they were the secret things of who? The devil. These are not God's secrets. These are the devil's secrets. They had nicknamed her false teaching, not the secret things of God like she claims. These are the secret things of Satan. And Jesus says to the group in the church who has not followed these deep things of Satan, these secret demonic beliefs and practices, he tells them, I do not lay on you any other burden. In other words, they're already doing everything right. They just have this thing that they need to get rid of. But once they get rid of that, they just need to keep at it. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Just, just, keep, just keep working. I, I don't have anything else other than what you are already doing. And he tells them explicitly, only, verse 25, only hold fast what you have until I come. This is the simplicity of the Christian life here. What's your job as a Christian? Be faithful until Jesus returns. There you go. No secret things of God here. No secret knowledge. Very simple, very easy. Love God, love neighbor, believe in Jesus, and continue to do that until he comes or you die. That's what he tells the church. Get rid of Jezebel and then just keep being faithful until I show up. That's it. Nothing else. It's a, it's a beautiful simplicity here. That's their exhortation. Just hold fast until I come. He concludes then with this very epic conclusion. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Does that sound familiar? We preached on that last week. That's Psalm chapter 2. A direct quote from Psalm chapter 2. And Jesus acknowledges this because he says, after quoting this, he says what? As I myself have received authority from my Father. This is amazing. So here's what happened. Remember last week we looked at Psalm 2? Jesus given authority over all the nations. He's going to break the, the nations with a rod. And now we have this strange thing because what is Jesus saying? That authority, that amazing and great authority that I inherited, I'm going to give it to you. I received this authority from my Father and y'all are going to receive it from me. As we were preaching through the book of Galatians, we kept hitting on this theme over and over again. Our mystical union with Christ. I hope you're sick of hearing me say this because we've said it a lot. You need to be sick of it. Because this is a huge theme throughout all of the New Testament, our union with Christ. We have this incredible experience as Christians that when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, we are united to him in such an intimate, mystical, spiritual way that we actually receive what is his. Paul says in Romans chapter 4, Christ is righteous. When you believe by faith, it is credited to you as righteous. God, he gives you his righteousness. By faith, you are as righteous as Jesus. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is not I who live, but Christ who lives through me. We died on that cross. You realize you were crucified on a Roman cross. Not physically, not literally, but spiritually by your faith. You are united to Christ in his death. You're united to him in his righteousness. We see all throughout the scriptures, Jesus talking about us sharing what he has. Ephesians tells us that Jesus, after he resurrected, ascended to the right hand of God. 
And then Ephesians goes on to say, and by faith, you have been seated in the heavenly places. You are seated at the right hand of God. Right now, you are seated at God's right hand. You sit on the throne of David. Because you, you, you are united to the one who sits on the throne of David. And so Jesus here is saying, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And by your faith, by your coming to me, I will give you that authority. I give you righteousness. I give you seats in the heavenly places. I give you crucifixion, death, new life. I give you authority. He tells them that you will rule over the world. And this is amazing because... This is the dominion mandate of Genesis. We were supposed to be doing this a long time ago, but we all fell in Adam. Adam was put on earth to have dominion over it, to take dominion over the land, dominion over the seas, dominion over the animals. We were supposed to rule over the earth, but we failed in Adam. We sinned and we lost that authority. And Satan took it. And that's why when Jesus was being tempted, Satan says, I'll give you the authority on earth if you just worship me. And Jesus essentially tells him, no, I'm going to get it a different way. So Jesus comes in, wrestles the strong man, destroys the strong man, receives authority from heaven and earth where he's now ruling over the nations, progressively bringing about his justice. And he promises us in the resurrection day, all that authority, it's going to us. To the one who holds fast to the end, who does not abandon my works, he will reign over the nations. He will carry that rod. Jesus is promising us dominion over the earth. So you need to see, guys, heaven is not just sitting on clouds with wings playing a harp. Heaven's not even just, oh, we don't even know. It's just going to be spiritual and ethereal and there's going to be, no, it's just going to be a, a mush of spiritual. No, we are going to be on earth ruling over the earth. I love, I saw someone on Facebook today, uh, there's this old expression, as Christians we often say that this earth is not our home, we're just passing through. Actually, that applies to unbelievers. It is those outside of Christ, the earth is not their home, they're the ones just passing through. We're going to rule it. We're going to take dominion over it. But it's only in Christ. It is only a shared authority that we receive from Christ who received it from his Father. And why do you think God reserved this great exhortation for this church? He could have said it's any of them. This is true for all Christians. Why does he give it to them? Well, remember our context. Who were these people? Nobodies. These were not the rich, powerful, cool folks in Ephesus. These were not the city slickers of New York City. These were not the rich and powerful tech giants living in Chicago and L.A. These were the nobodies living in, 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 in the middle of the country. These were like Roswellians. Yeah, you guys are the alien town. Other than that, I don't know anything about you. They were nobodies. And God says, one day you're going to be kings. One day you are going to be powerful lords of the earth. You're not just Midwest nobodies. You're heirs of a royal kingdom. That's what we have waiting for us. We're not just waiting to fly away to some spiritual place. We're waiting to fulfill what we were created to fulfill, which was mastery over the earth. 
And it only happens in Christ. He also encourages them by telling them he will give them the morning star. Jesus identifies himself as the morning star in the book of Revelation. Jesus is telling them that I know the days are dark right now. But the second coming metaphorically is going to be like a light piercing through the darkness. Jesus is the sunrise, the morning star, the star that rises in the morning. He is the one in the middle of our darkness. We need to see there's light in the dawn. He's coming. Light is piercing through our darkness. We can get through the night. The sun is rising. That's what Jesus tells them here. I'm I'm going to give you, I'm going to come. And all who have loved and waited for my appearing will enjoy this. The light will break through the darkness. Just hold fast through the night. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What is Jesus saying to these people? What's the main message of this? Jesus is reminding us that the discipline of Christ and the dominion of the resurrection should bring hope to every Christian. That God's righteous discipline and judgment and his promise to give us dominion and resurrection is a hope for all of us weary Christians. In our darkness, may we remember that he who has eyes of fire and bronze feet, he will render according to his works. Justice will be done. Remember that. And remember the morning star is rising. The new heavens and the new earth are coming. Remember that. Jesus has brought hope to this blue-collar church. But I want us just to briefly, very briefly end with a few other applications that I got from the text. Jesus wrote this. Jesus revealed this, I should say. He didn't write it, but he revealed this to encourage this church in Theatira. But there's some other things I want us to take home with us. Some other very important things that we've learned And the first thing I want us to be reminded of as well, on top of just being hopeful for the resurrection and for the judgment of Christ, I want us to remember the value of the instruction of the Old Testament. Two weeks in a row, God has used what he revealed in the Old Testament to help his people understand what's going on. Jesus has not done away with the Old Testament. Jesus does not think because the Old Covenant has passed away that the Old Testament has no value, no purpose, no bearing on our lives. Jesus leverages, he uses the Old Testament to help them repent, learn about God, and understand their circumstances. He's done that twice now. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul tells us the Old Testament is one of its primary purposes. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, that these things happened to them. He just got done quoting all of these Old Testament stories. He says, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. The Old Testament is filled with examples and instruction. So the Old Testament is vital to the life of New Covenant churches. So I don't know if any of you are familiar with a pastor named Andy Stanley. I consider him a false teacher. And so when you ever hear him say things like Christians need to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament, just know God hates that. God hates that. We are not called to unhitch from the Old Testament. We need to be intimately familiar with the Old Testament. We need to know it, love it, cherish it, and we need to let it give us instruction. So don't, value, don't, don't misunderstand or undervalue the instruction of the Old Testament. 
Uh, by the way, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, where Paul has this amazing text, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, rebuke. He's primarily talking about the Old Testament there. So that the man of God may be wise for salvation, be equipped for every good work. The Old Testament is a vital piece to being saved, to knowing God, to knowing salvation, and to being equipped for every good work. Do not, do not undervalue the Old Testament. The second thing I want us to remember to apply to our lives is the danger of sexual temptation. All sin is sin, but as I read through the Old and the New Testaments, it just seems like there's something about sexual sin that tends to rise itself above the fray. It is such a constant nuisance among the people of God. And it comes with such horrible damages. That's why the book of Proverbs, which is considered our wisdom literature, well, Psalms is too, but Proverbs is literally, the whole book is just, here's how to be wise. The whole beginning of Proverbs is a man who had hundreds of wives telling his son, don't do that. Warning his son over and over again not to fall into sexual temptation. There is something about sexual sin that is so strong and so wicked and so destructive we cannot underestimate. We have seen, by the way, what Jezebel was teaching was essentially the same thing that the Nicolaitans were teaching. All throughout Asia Minor, what was one of the number one sins of the church? Sexual immorality. And the Old Testament examples he used from Balaam and from Jezebel, what was that? It was people who knew we can leverage sexuality to get what we want. And we see that in our culture all the time. It is very easy, especially with men, to use sex to get what you want. And we also see how destructive it is and how much God hates it. Folks, we cannot underestimate that sexual sin is destroying the Christian church. The visible church. It's wrecking us. Pastors committing adultery, pornography rampant in our churches. It is a vile, powerful, horrible thing. Not sex. But sexual sin. And we need to remember how severely God judges it and how common of a temptation it is for God's people. And we have to fight against this and flee from these desires. And the last thing I want to say is this. We also learn what I'm calling the freedom of sanctification. The last thing I wanted to take away, you know, I found it interesting. Jesus tells them, I don't give you anything else. Just keep doing what you're doing. And you could read that in almost a discouraging light. Right? Because let's examine that for a second. What is sanctification? It's growing in holiness. Right? We're, we want to get better every day. We want to know about God more. We want to love God more. We want to obey Him better. Sanctification is growing in holiness. And so here's the question I have. When are you finally there? Like, what are you working toward? What's the end game? When do you stop? And what's the answer to that question? Never. God gets us there at the resurrection. So, so until you die, you're never there. Isn't it kind of easy to think of that as being actually very scary? Like, oh my goodness, I'm just working forever and ever and there's no product. I, I just keep working until I die. But I would argue that's the wrong way of looking at it. Folks, there is an incredible amount of freedom in this. You want to know what's a really stressful circumstance? when you have a deadline you're not ready for. That's the stress. 
When you need to be here by here and you're only here. That's terrifying. That's stressful. But when God says you're never there, that's freedom. I'm not trying to meet a deadline. I'm just loving God better every day until he takes me home. There's freedom in that. I think of it this way. One, one thing that's been very common for me in my very short pastoral ministry is it's not uncommon to meet someone who's either a new Christian or someone who's, you know, they've been a Christian their whole life, but they've never really taken it that seriously. And, and the Lord is finally, and they're finally taking it seriously. And I have had many conversations, especially with young people, but with older people too. Many private conversations of Christians pouring out their embarrassment because they're not as far along as everybody else in the church. These people grew up with Christianity. They know the stories. They know the names. They know the theology. I don't know any of that stuff. It discourages them. And you know what I tell them? Every person you look to and you think, wow, I wish I was where she was at. I wish I was where he was at. I said, if we took that person and got them behind closed doors, you want to know what they would say? You know, I've just got these guys, people in front of I just wish I was more like them. They're not there. <laughs> they don't think they've made it. They know they haven't made it. You see, there's always someone in front of us that we're working toward, and that person is someone we're all just endlessly working toward Jesus. So you don't need to feel ashamed or embarrassed if you don't know as much or you're not as farther along in your Christian walk as somebody else because guess what? The obligations for you who's here is the exact same for them who are here. Keep going. We're, so no matter where someone is, we're all in the same boat. And the same boat is you're not who you ought to be and you don't know as much as you ought to know, so keep going. Whether you've been a Christian for one day or 90 years, you are not who you ought to be. Keep going. It's freedom. You're not working towards the deadline. Oh, they've all made it and I haven't. No, none of us have made it. This is freedom to this. Paul tells in 1 Thessalonians, he tells them, he commends them for their holiness. 1 Thessalonians 4. He goes on to tell them how they've been walking with the Lord faithfully and he's heard of their good works and so he tells them this. So here's what I want you to do. Continue to abound in works all the more. He doesn't say, oh, you guys are good. Kick your feet up. You made it. This is exactly what I was going for. You, you got there. And just try to cheer everybody else along on their way now that you're in the finish line. Have you been struggling with sin this week? You know what your answer is? Accept the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Repent and keep pushing. If you've had a great week this week, guess what your answer is? Accept the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and keep moving forward. We're all in the same boat. And this is freedom. What does Jesus tell this blue-collar church? Just keep going. Just keep holding on. So do not forget the importance of the Old Testament. Do not forget the danger of sexual temptation. Do not forget the freedom of progressive sanctification. But above all, I want us to remember the hope that the morning star has given us. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. May we take great delight in that. <laughs>